0: This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
2: Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Andy Busser. Andy, thanks so much for joining me. So Andy, if you wouldn't mind giving a bit of background to yourself and your professional career before we get into some of the nitty gritty about conflict resolution and and management within families.
3: Yeah. Uh, So as you said, I I started in management consulting many years ago. And uh, when I was doing that, a group of trustees hired our management consulting firm to do a a review of a a large stock position that a client of theirs uh, held. And um, and so we did a deep dive on that company and I didn't know a lot about that company and about trustees and about the, even when I went into private equity after that I continued to work with this one family and uh, it's been a great experience. It's now been about twenty five years almost uh, that I've worked with them on a wide range of issues, certainly financial issues and sort of standard quantitative analytical issues, but also a lot of. Perspective, and then working through uh, a number of family dynamics issues with uh, with that family and, and other families. And as you said, Brian, a lot of the issues here uh, aren't aren't financial. Uh, they may look financial to begin with, but a lot of them are communication issues, or trust issues, or sort of openness, transparency issues. And that's really where I think we've been able to help a lot of families.
2: That's interesting. I had an interview last week with a somebody who works as a kind of wealth therapist and people don't realize, you know, from the outside when there's a liquidity event or inheritance, there's a lot of money obviously, but people don't really understand usually that sometimes those events can be traumatic and sad for a lot of people, right? There's a death in the family and that's what triggers the inheritance or there's a liquidity event and a company that somebody's worked on for a very long time is no longer within their control. And there's a lot of emotions involved. It's not all positive. And so I think that's part of this challenge. Most people think that having all the zeros in the bank account is nothing but great news. And I often say money can solve money problems, but it won't really solve the human condition. So can you really talk through how you are at, at Pitcairn and kind of manage the, the multifaceted nature of being a wealth holder?
3: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said there's a lot of emotions involved here. And I think you're exactly right. When you're, uh, maybe before you have your inheritance, there's really nothing emotional about, or there's a lot less to be emotional about. Um, And then when the inheritance comes in, uh, that really exacerbates whatever underlying emotions might be there, whatever communication or trust issues might be there. And all of a sudden you could be wrangling over millions of dollars. And, And not only is that an uncomfortable situation, it's a new situation for most people because they haven't had those millions of dollars. You know, it was it was mom and dad or the grandparents who had that money, and now it's yours. And so there are there are emotional issues there. How, you know, how am I going to manage this? There's a lot of self doubt that creeps in because people say, "Well, I've never done this before. I don't know what to do with twenty or fifty or a hundred million dollars. I know what to do with my my four hundred one k and the and the forty thousand dollars I have in the bank, but." I've got a whole new set of responsibilities, and now I've got my brother trying to get access to some funds and and a sister and a cousin, and I don't know how to handle all this, and I really need some help. And that, of course, creates a sense of insecurity in people because you're taking on a new responsibility that is enormous and carries a lot of emotional baggage and and family uh, connectivity uh, with it. So, a lot of what we do, Brian, is, is really to help people sit down and work through some communication issues some trust issues. And as much as possible, we try to lead people through a process and write down what everybody says and, and really create rules of the road for the family that all of the family members can agree on.
2: And I, and I think that conflict management resolution is so key because, as you point out, and you talked about in our pre-call. This amount of money is an accelerant for all things, right? So if a the liquidity event occurred, there were dynamics within the family around substance abuse or overspending or jealousy. These clippers of assets, in my opinion, and experience just exacerbate that like you mentioned. And so you've got these common types of family conflict. You did this great presentation for your firm recently and you break it down as intergenerational family branch and an independence versus family unity. I'd love for you to just kind of walk us through those three different buckets or three different fat patterns that you see often, and then we can kind of go from there.
3: Yeah. You know, I think the the core of all of this is that every human being, you, me, anybody who's watching this, everybody we know, everybody wants a sense of control in their lives. You want a sense of agency. You want a sense that that you can uh, bring about the things in your life that you want to have, uh, whether that's experiences or it's wealth or it's relationships, whatever. And so uh, what we see is, is yes, as you said, these three kinds of conflict. So intergenerational is very common when, you know, especially when you're a young adult and you're trying to establish yourself in life, but your parents or your grandparents won't give you any control and uh, and don't trust you maybe. And then, and then from the grandparents' perspective, they're saying, I, you know, how can I hand over 50 or $100 million to a 26-year-old who doesn't know what he or she is doing? So there's, there's a natural conflict there. And, uh, and then the family branches, you could have, you know, three branches, very common, you, have, you know, three branches at, at G2, and one of the branches dominates because maybe, maybe one of those G2 adult children is a dominant personality. And so that creates some strife and it, it can create strife at G2 there among those G2 siblings, but also among their children at generation three, where uh, those kids may develop some trust issues or or lack of communication. Um, and so you get this family branch conflict, you know, and especially if there's like a domineering aunt or uncle who is trustee for everybody, at G3, it can create some real family branch tension. And then and then the third is is really just this independence versus family unity, and this is always the I think the challenge that comes into any family is people say, look, I'm I'm delighted to be part of this family, but I want my own independence too. I don't want all of my life decisions to have to go through some uh, family construct. I'm happy to have some life decisions go through a family construct, uh, whether that's with a trust or a family business. Um, but I want I want to have some independence too. And the most successful families create roles that are independent for family members rather than roles that tie them always to the family and family governance.
2: One of the issues that has been cropping up in my conversations recently, and I'd love to hear your commentary now that people are living longer and there's an encouragement in the family office community have next gens engaged earlier. You sometimes have, you know, beyond just the typical three generations, you have four or five generations working together now and trying to navigate working with a baby boomer and a Gen Zer all under one roof. Have you seen that more and more within your clientele um, as this demographic shift has occurred?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Absolutely. We have a client family, marvelous family, very successful. Uh, great business, and and one of the G ones is a uh, hundred now, and then there are two G twos, multiple G threes, and some rising G fours who want to get involved in the business and want to get involved in some of family decision making, and that's where uh, the opportunity to to get people involved in a small scale uh, really is a great opportunity for a family. So give people a little bit of responsibility give them training and tools to deal with responsibility and let them develop their skill- skills so they can become responsible stewards, either liquid wealth or of a family business or some family assets, some skills to, to become uh, bigger contributors to the family down the road.
2: So we, it feels like we've we've kind of, solidified the concept that there is inherently conflict within families and it's exacerbated by this wrath and there's a lot of internal dynamics occurring. What can you do about it? And it seems like, you know, as my experience as an attorney, in this conflict management challenge, the litigators come in and they say, well, if you had a good corporate attorney on the front end, we wouldn't be here today. So there's probably some pre-planning that goes in, but if you have a family listening that's in the thick of it and working through yeah. it, what are best practices to, to management, to manage it as it's occurring? And I'd love to evolve the conversation into you know, pre-planning how you could be prophylactic with your considerations and preventing these things from occurring in the first place.
3: Well, I think if you're feeling that you're in conflict or you're worried that it's emerging, the first thing I would do is get an independent, objective third party to help, because that'll take a lot of burden off of the people involved, and it'll help alleviate some of the emotion that goes into these conversations naturally. I think there are two main steps that we've seen be very helpful. One is to prepare yourself for a conversation. So you know you're going to have to have a conversation. The best thing you can do is prepare yourself and write down as much as you can. And I, and I think there are three things. Write down what the issues are and, and don't be afraid to write them down two or three times and edit them a little bit so you get them really as clear as you can in your own mind and then I think a second importance is finding a sounding board. So could be a uh, this third party, or it could be somebody you just really trust, and practice talking about those issues in an unemotional way. And the and the more you can practice that, uh, the more confident you'll be in yourself when you actually get into the conversation. And then the second piece, you've written it down and you've practiced. The second piece is is really reaching out and starting the conversation. And the most important thing you can do there is stay calm. It's hard to do that. It's hard to stay calm when the issues are inherently emotional. But as we all know from experience, that when you when you lose control of your emotions, you lose the, the argument, you lose the conversation, and you won't get what you want. You won't resolve the conflict. And in fact, you may make it worse. So staying calm is really important and going back and having those notes and and listening. And and then I think to finish that conversation, be prepared that it's a process. It's multiple conversations. Write things down during the conversation and share them. Uh, you know, send a follow up email. But and and discuss it at the end of the meeting. Each conversation, just say, okay, here's what I think we've all agreed to in this conversation. And the more that you write things down, and the more that you let the other party or parties. Speak their mind and express what they think the truth is. The more likely you are to get buy-in to the outcome, and of course, that's the essential thing. You have have to have buy-in to the outcome; um, otherwise, it, it's not going to it's not going to move.
2: So, I, I want to kind of un- unpack some of the statements you made. One, bring in a third party. It's so interesting to me how these families will often bring in very niche, esoteric advisor or manager to talk about emerging market green energy opportunities. But they were, they were very hesitant to bring in a third party mediator or family therapist and have them on retainer to work through these challenges. What do you think is best practice? I mean, do you have somebody internally that's a facilitator? You have a rolodex of, of true independent third party folks that you bring in depending on The family and and what you think would be best for them? How does that work?
3: Yeah, yeah, we have both. So we have some internal experts, and then we work with a a range of external experts uh, who might have a specific skill set in conflict resolution in families, or maybe uh, helping families develop governance, uh, or maybe it's an expert in family business governance, or it's an expert in liquidity decision making. So there are lots of experts that we work with, and we'd be happy to connect people with and and then we'll facilitate as much as we can internally. but we also uh, even though we are an objective third party as a family office, uh, we're likely to have a long-term relationship with the family. So in many cases we'll want to bring in an outside party for something that's a little bit more of a specific project uh, like like conflict resolution.
2: And do you find that that these conversations are more efficient offsite? Or would you bring folks into the office, or do you find that a family should go to like a retreat or somewhere outside of the usual environment? What do you found that works the best, in your opinion?
3: Yeah, uh, offsite is definitely the best because it's it's neutral territory, and in many cases, it's some place where everybody can have fun, and so you can spend a little time talking about conflict uh, and maybe trying to resolve it. But then you can go do some fun activity together, and whether that's Going for a hike, or or uh, going sailing, or going skiing, or going fishing—whatever it is—going off-site gives everybody a uh, a neutral territory, and um, and it and makes it more fun.
2: So this all tracks and makes sense in terms of an acute situation that you need to deal with, but maybe kind of longer term, multi generational families. What are your, in your opinion, are our best practices to? Do preventive maintenance on this, to do the work beforehand to try to, you can never eliminate conflict, but maybe have a better roadmap or better s- tools and skills to handle conflict as they arise.
3: Yep. Well, again, I think there are three things that we can all do in a family. Number one is start with yourself and just look inward and ask yourself, what might I be doing that contributes to the conflict? And nobody wants to. Answer that question, but it's a really important one. And you'll have more credibility with your family members if you're open and honest about your own shortcomings that might contribute to conflict. And so, again, I would write that down, test it a little bit. If you have a sounding board, somebody you could talk to, but really think about yourself what do I do that contributes to uh, family conflict? I think the second thing, which we were talking about before, is having good governance. So, having a family decision charter is a great tool and the process of developing it is a great process for families to go through. And the more family members that you can bring into that process, the more buy-in you'll have for the process once it's, uh, once it's written down. And I would communicate whatever comes out of that process, communicate the family charter uh, as clearly and openly as you can to as many people as possible so that, that there is clarity and there aren't uh, misperceptions or a sense that, that some people are included, but others are. not the, the more transparent you can be, uh, the better. And then I think the, the third thing that I love is try and find your common ground. Uh, in families, there is, there's always you know two common ence- ancestors back there. Find what you can about that common ancestor that everybody can agree is good and celebrate that. Talk about a vision for the future. Of the family and of individuals in the family, and and then uh, try and focus on behaviors that build trust. And one family, does, and every time they kick off a family meeting once a year, they read those behaviors out loud. They go around the table, and each family member reads aloud one of the behaviors. And if you think about it, when you do that exercise, you're you're part of that family. You're part of that behavior. You're part of setting the standard. And I've seen families where there might be conflict at the generation two, but there's actually a lot less conflict at generation three because the the rules of the road are well established, and the participation in governance and family meetings is high.
2: Yeah, it seems like a very healthy exercise to go go through, and, and I'm an advocate for kind of similar to you know having a general counsel or a tax advisory firm retainer. I feel like every year a family should just have kind of a, a bucket of capital or some of of money set aside so that individuals can get their own individual therapy therapy on a, on a household basis and then just a family therapist that folks can access when they feel they need to. I think it would really help prevent a lot of these conflicts that you see rise up. And then hopefully people feel more comfortable about, about having these conversations. I know in our family, G1 does not feel that comfortable, whereas my generation, and certainly younger folks in my generation, they feel very um, at ease talking about mental health and wellness and awareness. So hopefully this dynamic is changing. Have you seen something similar across your client base?
3: Absolutely. It's a great point. I think think, uh, people who grew up maybe in the 40s and 50s, you didn't talk about your emotions much. You, You didn't talk about mental health. Uh, Whereas as a country now and a society, we're much more open about mental health issues. And uh, we know lots of families who do engage, uh, both on an individual level and a family level. Uh, Therapists who can help people work through issues, help people understand themselves. I think that's often one of the biggest challenges is just understanding yourself can be a really big challenge. And then having the self-awareness that comes from understanding yourself can be very helpful in avoiding conflict or resolving conflict down the road, but all of it leads to healthier relationships and and healthier dynamics and then Brian, going back to your original point it's it's not the money that gets families of wealth in trouble, it's the emotions and the conflict and and the interpersonal relationships that as they break down um, is the problem. So if you can avoid that and, and have some uh, some third party help, whether it's a therapist or a psychologist or family business consultant, or some combination of them can be hugely helpful.
0: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining The Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash capital club podcast for more information and to sign up today.
2: So I want to kind of pull back a little bit and just have your thoughts. When I mean, you're very ingrained at in the family office world and culture. What are some kind of trends that you're seeing play out right now in real time beyond just the conflict management? And the, I usually form this question as what's keeping your clients up at night right now?
3: yeah the number one issue almost across all of our families is succession planning. Are my kids going to be responsible adults? Are they going to be able to handle the substantial wealth that is coming their way? That's a lot of responsibility, and and that is, I think, the number one issue that keeps people up at night. Are my kids going to be prepared? And then the, the second issue, which is directly related, is, what can I do as a parent to prepare them? And am I doing those things? and that that there's always a challenge I don't want to give' the kids too much responsibility because they'll fail if, if you don't give them responsibility they don't develop the skills that they're gonna need to be your successor and and so I think the number one issue uh, that families face and what I encourage all families to do a lot is give kids opportunities uh, at different points in their lives, start educating them on wealth and and on uh, finance, but also on, on family decision-making. Uh, if you have an operating business, you know, tell people about that business and, and build the story around it. And, uh, uh, but get people opportunities to, to uh, engage in some responsibility. Could be through a family council, could be through a, a young family members a committee. Let people sit in on board meetings. Give them an opportunity to develop the skills that you know they are going to need.
2: And what about the, the family office industry? You know, over the last 10 or 20 years, just the concept and the, the word family office and the awareness in society has gone, you know, through the roof. And now it seems like everybody's talking about it. You all have been in this business for a very long time. I would love to hear your commentary and what you're seeing play out within the family office, multifamily office industry.
3: Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I think part of the answer relates back to what we've talked about here. The The word family office gets thrown around a lot. It's a pretty ill-defined term. So we've been at this 100 years. Uh, we've evolved a lot as a family office. Uh, we started with just one family, uh, but today we have 122 different families. Uh, we have our founding family, very large. They're on generations four, five, and six. But we've also got 100 and 20 or so other families. And I think my advice to uh, any family office, uh, whether you're a single family office or a multifamily office, is be sure to engage on the family dynamics as much as possible. The investment part is the straightforward part. And um, I'm not sure it's easy, but it's definitely straightforward. You can set an asset allocation, you can design trusts, you can uh, design... Uh, structures that hold assets and you can invest those assets and and there's a lot of infrastructure and support on the financial side but as we've said that 's not where things break down. they break down on the family dynamics side uh in the emotions in the dynamics between and among family members and so I would say for any family office, be sure to invest in family dynamics in uh, if you need a a, a therapist or some objective third party uh, invest in that, and your family will be much more sustainable much longer if you do that. If you just focus on the finances, it will break apart. The evidence is overwhelmingly clear on that point. So I
2: want to follow up there. If you are a family, consider joining a platform like a multifamily office or an RIA, etc. It can be really hard if you're first generation, in my opinion, to push through the marketing component and actually understand the services provided or the experience that that platform has, what are the questions that people should be asking the firm or maybe if they have a, a reference point of a current client to make sure that it is true of holistic wealth and not just an investment shop?
3: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think, I think uh, there are three components to that. We keep talking about three, but I think there are three components. The first component is capabilities. So write down a list of all the things that you want to take off your plate and that you want that family office to do. So make a list of all the capabilities that you want. And it it could be liquid investments and private equity, but it could also be bill pay and consolidated reporting of assets. It could be uh, insurance support. It could be uh, education and succession planning in, in family dynamics areas. So make a list of all those things and then ask the firms, do you do this? Give me examples of how you do this. Let me see your investment portfolio. Let me see a, a typical asset allocation. Uh, how many, if, if they say they're really good at, at forming trusts, say, great, how many have you formed? And what would have been the biggest challenges you've seen? So perhaps a couple layers down for examples uh, of all the capabilities you need. In the, in the second area, it really goes trust. So how long have they been around? Um, a big issue is what's their ownership structure? Uh, we've seen private equity money pour into the ultra high net worth advisory and multifamily office business over the last five to 10 years. As anybody knows, it follows private equity. They're there for themselves and they are there to get a return and they have to sell that business. So be very careful about the ownership structure of the business and be very clear. I mean, ask them directly, do you have any private equity money? Do you have any investors in your firm who are not partners or who are not clients? Um, and um, if they say, well, yeah, we have a, a great private equity partner, just know, they may be a great partner, but just know that that firm is going to have to have a liquidity event themselves. And you don't know who your family office is necessarily going years from now. I think the third issue, and this may be the most important one. Beyond capabilities and trust, like, do you like the people you're gonna work with on a daily basis? Because the relationship that you're gonna develop with that family office or that multifamily office is gonna be very personal and you're gonna talk about a lot of sensitive topics. And yeah, it may be a sensitive topic financially, but it may be a sensitive topic about, hey, you know, I I named my daughter trustee, but I noticed she, she's developing an addiction issue. And so you're going to have to have really sensitive conversations and you're much more likely to have a successful sensitive conversation with that family office when you really like the people, when you feel good about picking up the phone and calling them. If you're, if you don't like them, you're just less likely to do it and you're le- less likely to resolve whatever issues come up. So, so capabilities, very important. Trust, very important. And then. Liking the people, very important.
2: Yeah, I'll provide some additional commentary. My personal opinion is this private equity money involved in these aggregation plays and rollups ups within the RA multifamily office space is really worrying to me because they're buying these books at pretty aggressive multiples and it's all contingent on growth. And so when you see that type of growth, you kind of wonder about the client experience or the client onboarding. I'm not saying they're all bad, but it is worrying, and I think a question that people really need to understand much more in depth if they're going to join one of those firms, kind of what the end game looks like. So, really interesting that you brought that up, given the fact that you put our uh, focus on this conflict management resolution. You're working with these families, which is inherently, you know, uh, uh, complicated dynamics that you're kind of uh, helping be air traffic control for. What are the things that you do personally to kind of manage through the the financial piece that you hope to achieve in your own life?
3: Oh, you know, it starts with my wife and I talk a lot and we talk with our kids a lot. We may not talk about specific numbers, but we talk about responsibility and we, we talk about the fact that they are going to inherit something, not, you know, huge amounts, but they're definitely going to inherit enough that it is it's a significant responsibility and so we talk about that a lot at the dinner table i think it's actually been one of the blessings of the pandemic is we've all had dim dumb my wife and i are lucky to have two great teenage boys and being able to spend all that time with them has really been terrific and so we've been able to to talk and um, i i would encourage everybody to to talk with your kids prepare them talk about responsibility talk about opportunities uh, but the responsibilities that come with those opportunities.
2: Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been terrific. Um, I really learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience will as well. If people are interested in learning more about Pitcairn, the firm, or in, engaging with you and the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
3: Yeah, uh, so we obviously have a website. It's pitcairn.com. Pitcairn is a, um unusual name, so it's P-I-T-C-A-I-R-N.com. And you can send me an email if you'd like. It's a.busser at pitcairn.com. And and if you want to give me a call, you can give me a call, uh, 646-357-2173.
2: Well, Andy, thank you again for coming on. This is great. We'll have to to do another one on a different set of topics in the future. Uh, For our listeners, don't forget to leave us a review. Let us know your favorite part of today's episode. And Andy, thank you again for the time.
3: Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.